Fuckers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 125. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Ben Umanoff, the Metal Sucks co-founder formerly known as Vince Neilstein. We talk about the origin story behind the opinionated news site, and we have an in-depth discussion about something he calls the Metallica economy, which is the way that every time Metallica begins a new album and touring cycle, it is really the digital wave that lifts all of the metal websites. Now, Ben and Matt, the two guys who started Metal Sucks, actually sold it to The Orchard, a subsidiary of Sony Music, in 2022, and left their co-editor-in-chief positions. A lot of great insight, a lot of cool conversation here about this thing of ours when it comes to metal, media, management, and of course, Metallica. Remember, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your preferred podcast platform of choice might be. You can also support the show on Patreon. You can keep up with me at ryanjdowney.com, keep up with the show at speakanddestroy.com, and you can find all of the relevant social media handles in each of those places. At the time I'm recording this, the Speak and Destroy Instagram just cracked 10,000 followers, which is quite a neat little milestone. I'm regularly posting a lot of just cool and rare or rare-ish Metallica photos from all sorts of eras all across the last 40 plus years of the band. So uh, if you're not following, pop in there and give it a follow. I think you'll enjoy it. So here it is, my conversation with Ben Umanoff, co-founder of Metal Sucks. This is Speak and Destroy. officially call you ben now (laughs) (laughs) yes we do (laughs) you uh you've officially uh transitioned into your uh civilian identity yes the the my my civilian identity is in full effect (laughs) and Uh, in fact i I can't even use vince anymore now you don't you don't own vince nielstein anymore (laughs) (laughs) it's like you're like a retired wwe wrestler yeah pretty much so let's go all the way back. I want to get into the story of Metal Sucks, uh, but I, I also want to get into your story. And one of the great things about doing this podcast is getting an opportunity to get people I really like uh, to, to get to know you better and oh, have an excuse you. to call it work, you know? So tell me what your earliest experiences were with music. Did you grow up with music around the house? Were your parents listening to stuff? And And at what point did you realize 
this isn't just something that I that I love. This is something I want to participate in somehow. I need to be part of it. Well, um, I definitely grew up around music. My father owned a guitar store. Uh, so, you know, literally grew up around it. Uh, not that we lived in the same building, but, uh, you know, how could you not be around music if your father owns a guitar store? Of course, there were always instruments around the house, always music playing, uh, not not metal. I d- would discover that on my own when I saw the uh, the video for Jump by Van Halen. I was like, what is that guy doing on the guitar? That's awesome. It's interesting. This actually came up recently in a conversation with a friend is that it never, I think for a lot of people, it's shunned or discouraged to pursue a career in music in one way or another, whether it's the industry or as a musician. And it didn't even occur to me that I shouldn't do that until much later. You know, it was always sort of something that was, it was just right there. Um, But, you know, I spent my summers, Christmas vacations, working in the guitar store. It was in downtown Manhattan, Uh, closed a few years ago. It was there for a long time. Uh, almost 50 years and uh, met a lot of interesting characters, celebrities, neighborhood musicians, the whole thing. You mentioned that pivotal moment of the Van Halen jump video. (laughs) How did that then open the floodgates? What, what came after that? Well, I was, uh, you know, I was too young to have discovered that at the time that it was popular. So this was several years later. But I mean, my my dad was actually very kind of like anti-metal in it. He was like, oh, that's just noise, you know, like so many of our parents. Um, but, you know, I don't in my memory, maybe I've embellished this. I was home alone or my parents were in another room or something. And I was watching MTV, which was like the forbidden channel, you know, like you can't, you can't watch that. And in my memory, it was back to back jump and beat it by Michael Jackson, uh, which yeah. of course has a yeah. guitar <laughs> solo in it. Um, and I wrote them down on a little sticky note that my parents kept by the phone. And uh, I guess they drew the line at Michael Jackson for whatever reason, but they actually bought me a cassette of 1984 for a birthday or something like that. Um, And so credit to them for doing that, even though it wasn't their thing. That's pretty cool. They were, they were encouraging whatever musical path I wanted to be into. Um, And, you know, from there it was a very familiar trajectory. Um, I think the first CDs I ever owned were use your illusion one. Rad. U2, Octone Baby, and the Black Album. That is uh, an incredible trio. Yeah, it was a, it was a good group. Um, and you know, and then of course, the the metal rabbit hole revealed itself to me from there. Um, but uh, it would actually be a while before I, I really, really got into it because of the way I got into metal through Van Halen. Obviously, a, a very technical guitar player and inspired me to want to learn guitar i uh that was to me was was the most appealing thing was guitar playing in my high school years correlated with new metal so i was like 
fuck this stuff. Like this is, you know, like I did, did not appeal to me at all. So I kind of got out of metal during that period, which is, you know, when you would think would be some of the most formative years. Um, I went back and discovered classic rock, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin uh, were, you know, a lot of my favorite bands, Jimi Hendrix. And um, then it wasn't really until college that I kind of came back around and started discovering uh, some of the cool stuff that was going on in uh, in the European scene, in Scandinavia, and in the uh, early metalcore kind of stuff in the US. new wave of American heavy metal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and even like before that, uh, like I, I guess I, at some point I got really into Cave In. They were sort of one of my bridge bands, I mm, guess you could say. Right. Um, yeah, band. and then you know, Cave In of the Metallica medley which was like a pretty unorthodox thing to be doing in the hardcore scene at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, I was like, I love this band. <laughs> yeah. And still love them. They're awesome. Yeah, absolutely. H- have, the, have them on Speaking Destroy, actually. You mentioned playing guitar. Uh, were you in bands, high school, college? Era? I was. I was in a band in high school called The Steel Breeze, which was Pink Floyd lyric. Um, and, um, I was in a band in college called Oblivion, which was more of like a, uh, we just really wanted to be tool, I guess. (laughs) Uh, and, um, and then I was in another band after that, which I guess was sort of the, the moment that I realized that this lifestyle isn't really for me. Uh, you know, that I, that like everything you have to put into being in a successful band is, um, just, I guess I just wanted, craved more stability than that, I suppose. Understandable. Yeah. (laughs) And Um, wise and astute in many ways. Yeah. Um, Let's, let's jump backward to the black album for a moment. Do you remember what resonated with you about it what what its uh strengths were you know how you connected and 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 where that led you in terms of the branches of you know seeking out the metallica catalog was the black album the current metallica album when you got the cd it was it was it was current and uh i think it was wherever i may roam was the first track that i was introduced they were pushing that on mtv at the time um and, you know, I was 10 and you just see, you know, I think we all have that moment where you just see a band and you hear the music and there's something you relate to. I guess it's different for everyone. For me, it was just the, like the musical aesthetic, just the way it sounded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't a particularly angry child um we all have our issues of course but uh you know it was just i just thought it sounded so cool you know um i guess maybe we have bob rock to thank for that you know i don't know that my 10 year old brain would have been ready for kill them all uh (laughs) but you know but um and i think the songwriting you know like it it was when you really boil it down, a lot of the songs on that record follow a pop song structure, right? You know, so that was something that I guess that I could relate to. 
um, my, my, uh, you know, at that time I also like some of my first cassettes that I owned were a Billy Joel cassette, a boys to men cassette, some like country classic country stuff that my dad had given me, you know, so like really all over the map, but, yeah, um, great. you know, I, I see this with my son now is like, he connects with pop music, modern pop music. And I just think there's just something chemical or biological on the human brain. So, you know, I think that's what it was for me to a large extent with Metallica, just great songs. Yeah. And, and well-constructed well in that way and a great, you game. know, and they like look cool, right. You know, like that, like that era of Metallica, like look wise is just always going to be the coolest to me, you know, like Hetfield with the Explorer guitar and the black wristbands and the trucker stash, you know, like that, just like nothing, nothing tops that. And absolutely incredible, iconic. And the fact that it's, it's we're now even a couple years on from talking about the 30th anniversary of that album, which is mind blowing. Yeah, no, I know. Absolutely mind blowing. Uh, so, and we will intersect, uh, dear listener, we will intersect back into Metallica in a big way. But I want to hear the Metal Sucks origin story because I've I've never heard it before. And I will tell you first as a bit of context, my relationship with it you know as you know i've been a long time journalist among other hats that i've worn over the years and i first became aware of metal sucks it definitely would have been people sending me stories to read because of the point of view because of the attitude because of the humor uh because of uh the way that the site not everything and not every story, but but the way that the site would often editorialize and take a position on something, which I immediately connected to, especially as, and this is no shade on, on any of your competitors or friends, and as people listening to this might not know, like so many of us are all pals with each other, but uh, by nature of having to sustain a business and survive, a lot of these sites are very... Uh, sanitized, very safe in terms of their coverage. And there's a little bit of what people call access media, where you don't want to upset the apple cart too much with certain artists because you want to be able to get the interviews and get the record advances and get on the guest list at the shows and so on. I think there's less of that now because there's very little original content being produced by news outlets. Most of it is is aggregating and re-reporting. And we'll get into all of that, obviously. But 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 taking it back to sort of that early genesis, I really think that's something that distinguished Metal Sucks. And then as, uh, you know, the manager for the band Demon Hunter, it changed and evolved over time. But initially Metal Sucks was uh, very cruel to Demon Hunter and, you know, to, took a lot of swings at them and uh, made, made a lot of jokes at their expense. And for me, as a fan of music, metal, journalism, comedy, I absolutely loved it. And I can tell you the guys in Demon Hunter did also. And I'm sure that that wasn't necessarily a common experience for the editors of Metal Sucks, but I would see things written about Demon Hunter on the site. And it was like, I would be disappointed if this wasn't the view that Metal Sucks took on this album or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it was just like, and then also when, when that evolved and the band started to get more positive coverage, I also took it as a sign that, um, I don't know. It was like a mark of distinction. Like it was kind of like, 
you know, these guys aren't, these guys aren't easy. You know, they're not, they're, they're not going to just say everything's great just for the sake of saying something's great. So that's my big uh, long-winded context of, of what my experience was. And this was, you know, prior to getting to know you and getting to know the, the, you know, your partners and everything. But um, yeah. So what was the, what was the origin story? I mean, even just down to the name, I think a lot of people don't realize this because metal sucks became so much bigger and I don't know anything about this other site. So I'm not dissing them, but there is a site called metal rules. And so it was just hilarious and awesome that there's a site called metal sucks. And it's one of those jokes that in a vacuum doesn't translate necessarily as well. Cause I think maybe your Dave Mustaines or whoever, you know, probably look at it and go like, why these guys don't even like metal. They call it metal. You know what I mean? Or not to throw Mustaine under the bus, but well, we get, we got a lot of that in the early days when we would go to, to shows and pass out flyers or stickers. <laughs> Cause that was still a thing that people did. Yeah. Uh, you know, like people would, <laughs> we, we, we would, we would, everyone come out of the show and we'd have to look at it and they'd go like, metal sucks and they like throw it on the ground and stamp on it and storm off and we're like all right well clearly our site wasn't going to be for you anyway <laughs> um, but um but yeah no i mean you you really pretty nailed pretty much nailed the origin story with, without even meaning to which is that we set out to make something opinionated um for those that don't know my partner, Matt, who wrote under the pseudonym Axel Rosenberg, and I have been friends since we were in kindergarten. Mm. Um, Axel and Rosenberg and Vince Neilstein, the first indeed. two of many and, excellent names. <laughs> uh, but playing back into our, uh, like his his Van Halen was Guns N' Roses, you know, like the first band that he loved, loved, loved. Um, and um, we, you know, we weren't, necessarily always super close between kindergarten and when we started metal sucks when we were i guess 24 you know but we were always in touch and, and friendly and and you know sometimes closer than others and uh the period after college i guess we were hanging out a whole lot and we would go to one another's apartments in new york city and listen to whatever you know new metal one or the other uh new metal <laughs> yeah. one or the other was digging and we would get stoned and we would have these conversations about what we thought about about it you know and we came to the realization like why isn't there a media outlet that's reporting on metal in this way that's like how people actually talk about yeah not just metal but music Mm -hmm. um and some of the characters in metal and people that we love but also like to poke fun at or you know it's the same i look at it this very similar to the way that that people who are really into sports will talk about like their favorite team like it's their favorite team but they still might not like the coach that year or complain right. about some yeah. play or whatever and then that's all part of the the fandom which i think people don't necessarily understand from the outside yeah totally and and they're similar also in that you can't really control what happens with, with the, a band or, or a sports team or, um, but, um, I think, uh, I think I was the one who kind of threw through the first idea around of like, let's do basically like a pitchfork, but for metal, uh, was kind of like the original. Cause this was, you know, in, in those days when pitchfork was all the rage, yeah. uh, you know, like, why is there not a metal site that talks about metal the way people actually talk about it? Um, and 
I want to say it was Matt that came up with the idea. Metal sucks. The name. I can't quite remember at this point, to be honest, but I can tell you that it happened in between bands at a Children of Bodom, a Monomarth show. Um, that much I do remember. And uh, I, I think the next day I set up like a bare bones WordPress website that had nothing on it. And um, at that point, it still wasn't anything serious at all. And like Matt just started cranking out content, you know, like he, he has way more of a writing creative background than I do. Uh, went to film school, uh, has always been involved in film and writing in various capacities. And, you know, and he just went at it and I jumped on board too. Um, and I think people connected with that tone. I think that there was clearly a void uh, mm. that basically our assumption was correct that like people want to read something that's in the tone that they actually talk about the music uh, rather than these sort of like adopted unbiased reviewer tones, which, you know, has value too, uh, but it was not really what we were trying to do at that time. Um, and fast forward a bunch, uh, we worked on that for two and a half years, um, during which time we met the metal injection guys who were doing something similar as us at that time, way more focused in the video realm than they would later go on to be. And we came up with this idea for the blast beat network, which was a new company that would handle the advertising for both of our sites and other metal sites. And about, Two and a half years, a little bit more from the time that we started Metal Sucks, we quit our jobs and haven't looked back since. Wow. I mean, that's impressive in and of itself. And especially, I mean, we could do a whole separate podcast about the twists and turns of the of the digital economy and ad revenue and, and uh, the different, you know, having to craft headlines for SEO and how to, you know, game the search engine system and all that stuff that goes on yeah. behind the scenes that you really have to be on top of constantly. Yeah, and we, we learned it all as we went. Uh, you know, we didn't have any startup funding or, you know, anything like that. It was just sweat equity, which is, yeah. you know, something that as a 24 year old with no kids and, you know, no major commitments and with other jobs to pay the bills that you can do. So, you know, I would, I was working, at the time, I was working at a small record label called Wrong Records that was housed in a recording studio and uh, also shared space with a producer manager. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was kind of like the assistant to all three of those operations. Um, I then moved and did, and I worked with just the manager for a year, maybe a little longer. And then I got a job at Atlantic Records. Uh, you know, and that was really when. It was like, okay, this job pays more than anything that's ever, any job I've ever had before, but also it was a lot more demanding. So I would go into the office in Midtown and sort of like sneak write, you know, a few, <laughs> right. I, I would, I would, I would write it in a, a, a blank email. So it looked like I was working, you know, and I would like draft it there and then quick paste it into WordPress and like hit publish, you know, and then I would go home. And I would write as much as I could for the next day. So I had a couple of articles ready, ready to go. To publish. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was, that was 
how we ran it for a while there until we had a little bit of money coming in. Some labels wanted to do ad campaigns and it was growing steadily. And I felt that if I had all that time back that I could bridge the gap between what we were earning and what, uh, what we needed to earn. And that ended up working out. Yeah. The rest is history, as they say. Yeah. And there's a lot of, of course, you know, um, asking for forgiveness later rather than permission. I mean, things that people don't necessarily even know when you start a website, like grabbing a photo, right? It's like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. doing a story about emperor. I'm going to just Google image emperor and grab a cool picture. And how, you know, websites run into like, you know, there's some photographers out there that just didn't, you know, aren't able to earn a living as a photographer anymore, but they're earning a living just sitting around waiting for someone to use one of their photos and come after them. Uh, yes. The copyright trolls. Yes. Copyright we, trolls. Yes. We have learned about those, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I know when I was running video for uh, movie web for a while, something I kept noticing in YouTube comments is there would always be these random, very specific comments that would say, um, cool song. Who is it? What music is that? And the music that we use in those videos was always copyright free, royalty free, like stuff that YouTube suggested or provided. Like that was all on lock. So it was never a worry. But the way those comments were worded and the fact that they always repeatedly happened and it was no, there was nothing cool about the music that was in the videos. Led me to believe like, oh, these are copyright trolls. This is like somebody, this is some probably automated bot kind of thing of, you know, how can we bust somebody's video wow. Wow. <laughs> for using music and either monetize it or, or go after them or whatever. Yeah, why not? So when you're doing Blast Beat Network, with something like Metal Sucks that has such a editorial voice to it, that is by nature going to be polarizing because, and one of the great things that I think is so important, you know, I mean, there was a time when I was still contributing to alternative press and this was two alternative press regimes ago, ownership wise, but there was a time where there was an edict that all record reviews would be positive. And it's like, well, and I understood it honestly from as much as it sounds like a quote unquote sellout thing to say, I understood it from a business perspective because of the relationships, with the labels who were the advertisers and who, you know, so on and so forth provided the access to the artists that we wrote about. But my argument was, well, let's just not do them at all because a good review doesn't mean anything if every review is good. Right. You know, (laughs) that's, that's kind of the point. So the reason why I bring that up is because metal sucks taking polarizing positions on things from time to time. How did that affect the relationships with the labels and the managers and the bands and everything, uh, um, you know, on the other, the, uh, the bottom line side where you need those folks to. Um, Well, it, I guess the short answer is it did affect those relationships and there certainly was lost revenue because of it. Uh, but we decided very early on that it was worth it. You know, that it was, it, it was something lost was another thing gained. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's also important to differentiate the role that music media plays in the popular culture. Uh, you know, when we started out, it was very much still the era of blogs and influence and media. And, you know, like uh, I'm not saying this to, to toot our own horn, but like if a band, uh, a young band, especially got a write up on metal sucks and it was favorable, 
it could really help boost their numbers. Uh, you know, and we had pretty aggressively managers and publicists and so on and so forth going after us to mm. try and get that coverage and then, you know, kind of kind of celebrating when they did, because it could move the needle. Uh, not not to take credit for any band's sure. success, uh, you know, but but it could definitely move the needle, you know, and I think um, a couple of bands off the top of my head that that I would name is maybe helping a, a little bit of small amount during their rise were periphery and protest the hero. Um, and, uh, you know, which isn't to say that it was the only thing like there were bands that we loved and wrote about all the time that that didn't, you know, it didn't move the needle at all. So maybe maybe there, you know, there are definitely other factors going on there. But anyway, uh, I bring that up because at some point it changed, not for Metal Sucks specifically, but for all media, that with Spotify playlists and algorithms and YouTube and people sharing music on social media, that media was no longer about music discovery for the fan. They weren't tuning into media for that reason. Um, it was more just the, you know, what does Corey Taylor think kind of stuff that uh, was sort of the gossipy stuff. And, you know, and that was where the numbers said that people were interested in reading about stuff. Um, I guess I'm, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here. No, this is perfect. But, um, but to, to answer the question about, um, about relationships, um, in the beginning, it didn't seem to matter uh, because labels realized correctly, in my opinion, that just because we gave an album a bad review, for example, didn't mean that fans of that band were, or, or people reading it weren't going to be fans of that band. You know, in fact, uh, a negative review would probably attract droves of fans of that band to leave comments. And, mm -hmm. you know, and those are the people that are going to see the advertisements too. And maybe a neutral fan didn't know, but just got a link of this, bad review. Oh, you have to read this thing, you know? So labels saw that there was still value in, in placing ads. Definitely some labels did not see that, uh, you know, and refused to spend money with us or, or pulled their, their ad budgets if we gave a certain band a bad review and they were just, you know, and, and there were definitely labels that were cool with it and labels that weren't, you know, there, there definitely was that line in the sand. Um, but as time went on, getting back to what I was saying about the, the different role that metal media played over time, uh, it didn't really matter as much because, um, because we weren't relying on labels for income really mm. anymore. Mm. They, were, they were such a small part of the picture by the time that we got out of the game. Um, now that's not to say that labels or or you know management or whoever industry types wouldn't get angry about other things that we wrote about bands not related to their music um and uh that would affect budgets too certainly but we always just took the stance that we would rather we would rather just stick to our guns and report it as we see it than bow to a a nice paycheck and it's it's certainly the case that we could have earned more money over the years by not approaching it that way. 
but uh, you know, we supported ourselves. We, we did pretty well. Um, we were comfortable and, you know, and that was the most important thing to us was, was to be able to, uh, obviously to survive and to do it sticking to our guns. Yeah. And there's two great things about that. I think one is that the value of criticism and part of good criticism is constructed in a way that the audience understands the knowledge, the experience, the point of view that that particular critic has and gets to know them via the criticism well enough to understand like, oh, if Vince Neilstein hated this record, I'll probably love it. Right. Or if he loved this record, maybe I'm not, maybe it's not going to be my favorite. That's the value of like great criticism when it's, when it's really well-crafted in my opinion. And the second thing that that makes me think of is that Certainly while there was short-term money that you were giving up by, uh, you know, being at the whim of very personality-driven labels and brands that would, you know, want to go all out war against you because you wrote something they didn't like. I think it was also, you were, you were leaving money on the table now in order to make more money later because ultimately building a reputation as a, a no-nonsense uh, entity that that can't be swayed by markets and advertisers and won't be bullied into positive coverage, ultimately that gave you a more valuable, more sustainable business than had you just kind of been a lapdog and a state, you know, state-run media for the industry. Right. For sure. And that, that was, that was always the view that we took. Um, and also just from a creative standpoint, uh, it's just not that much fun to approach music writing in that way. I don't think, uh, I mean, obviously our, our site was founded on us putting our personal opinions out there, but you know, like what, what even is an unbiased review of me? Like, what does that even mean? Like, okay, it's, uh, you know, 120 BPM. There's some riffs with 16th note, you know, like what, like, what can you like actually say that doesn't have any bias? You know, it's like, it's, it's kind of a, a weird concept. Um, you know, I, like a, a lot of, I'll, I'll hear, sometimes I've seen this of like, well, you should have let somebody who knows more about that particular style of metal write about that, which I understand because it's important to know the historical context of that band and that scene. And, you know, and if I'm reviewing a black metal album and I'm not much of a black metal person, then I'm probably not going to like it. But like, that's what you're saying. It's tied into the personality. People know that. And we built those personalities and we built that relationship with our readers over time. And it's just, I don't know, it's just more fun to write that way. You know, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know how to write an unbiased review. I don't think I could do it. And too often we hear folks use the, the phrase critic as a pejorative. And I think that that betrays you know, there's a, a big misunderstanding of what criticism is for people that think like, well, that guy's a critic, that girl's a critic, that person's criticizing this. I think that that's a big, it demonstrates a big misunderstanding about what it even means because 
contrary to that connotation and, and the name of the website being obviously ironic and satire metal sucks celebrates metal you often championed bands that you loved and would wholeheartedly endorse things that you felt were worth getting behind and when a band made a record that you really loved you you went just as hard on loving it and pushing it as you would on something that you didn't like and that's something that i think people forget you know when people say oh i don't listen to critics or i don't care about what critics think there's this implication that all criticism is being critical in the sense that you're crapping on everything and you're a hater further from the truth when you're doing it right yeah and there's also like to me if i read a music review like obviously this is sort of hindsight or or like meta knowledge because i've you know i'm also a writer but like if i read a music review i'm just like okay well that's what one person thinks like (laughs) great like you're just one person you know and like people who get upset about if if a review it was negative about their favorite band like need to understand that you know just one person like that's what they think and like just because they think that doesn't mean you need to think that. And it doesn't mean that it's nothing against you, like, you know, like, like what you like, like, and that's a big thing I think is when people get angry about negative coverage, it's, it's ultimately it's this ego thing. It's like, they feel attacked even though they're not being attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's their, their personal identity is so tied up in this thing that they, they, feel as if they are being attacked they can't separate the ego from whatever it is that that they like i had a manager get really aggressive with me on a call once on behalf of a a lead singer who uh i'd done a cover story on it's only only this has only ever happened once of you know when i was senior editor for alternative press i wrote over a dozen cover stories and only one only one of them only once did the lead singer declare that he, you know, hated the story so much that the, the band refused to promote the issue and so on. And the manager got on the phone with me and berated me. That same manager, six months later, was at a different company working with different bands and was like, yeah, dude, that guy sucked. Oh yeah. I hated making that call to you. So it's also sort of like <laughs> when people are so invested in being blowhards on behalf of this or that band or this or that record, like, it's important to remember that they might not even be that might not even be like the whole whole right well it's just their job you know, you know? and we job. and we, yeah. we we see that a lot too with um or I should speak in the past tense we saw that a lot with label publicists or or managers who were upset about our coverage of something not having to do with the music uh you know like something political or uh, like a, a sexual harassment, you know, like things of that nature who would come at us very hard for covering something in a certain way that ultimately we have to remember they're being paid by this person indirectly, you know, like it's yeah. their job to defend them. And if they weren't, like, I don't think it's as linear a process as this is my boss. I have to stick up for that. You know, it's like when you work for a company, you, you know, and this isn't like, I don't, I don't mean this in in a bad way necessarily, because I've been there, but you just, you like 
have to endorse the things you have to believe in the things that the company believes in, you know, or else there will just be this cognitive dissonance that will result in either you quitting or losing the job essentially. Um, you know, which is basically what happened to me at Atlantic records. Thankfully I had a, a business that was on the precipice of being able to be full-time and metal sucks, but you know, there were definitely like, I didn't see eye to eye with them on a lot of things. And I made those opinions known. Uh, for example, Spotify was like new on the scene and I was pro, pro, pro Spotify. And they were just like not having it, you know, like could not believe that music could be free to stream. Um, and that was a, a point of tension, but, you know, bringing it back, I understand why, why, uh, industry types have to sometimes stand up for their artists, even if they know better. Uh, well, and there's something, there's something implicit in, in the word representative, right? When you're, when you're a rep for a band as a publicist or a manager or booking agent, you know, you're, you're representing them and advocating for their position on something. And, and sometimes you get some good cop, bad cop, or someone might soften the blow by going like, look, I hate to have to, yeah. you know, but you know, and, um, and I get that, but I want to unpack something that you mentioned a moment ago, which will then segue us into Metallica quite beautifully. What does Corey Taylor think? Because that's like a meme. I would say that that's officially in meme culture. And, you know, people that might see that commented on articles or, you know, thrown around as a joke. My interpretation of it is, is it's not personally disparaging the Corey Taylor I think that some folks might misinterpret it as thinking that the what does Corey Taylor think meme is like saying like, oh, I don't, his opinions are are irritating or I don't, who is he to talk about things or whatever. I think it's more a comment on what generates clicks, what, you know, and, and that someone can ask Corey Taylor something in an interview or Corey Taylor can tweet about something and that can become an article that is then widely read what, despite, yeah. you know, whatever... <laughs> however much value or, or lack thereof might be in that particular subject. Um, but for you as, as right there on the inside and watching that turn into a meme, if you could, if you could speak to that, unpack a little bit for, for yeah, well, uh, historians. Well, 100% the last thing is just like, it became apparent to us that anytime we wrote about Corey Taylor, we would see a spike in traffic. At that time, you know, we were sort of starting to get into this phase of metal sucks where we were, we were well into the gossip phase to where, um, where, where actual write-ups of music were not that important, both for our site and the entire music media world, I would mm -hmm. say. And, and we were also, and we say gossip just for clarification, yeah. um, give right. me, a well, I guess I mean like literally like what. Like, what does Corey Taylor think? Yeah. You know, like that, say, kind yeah, of, me, that kind of stuff. Like Lars said this, James said that, Corey said this, uh, you know, reporting on their opinions and things they've said in interviews that might be controversial, I yeah. guess you could say. Mustaine um, would come up a lot in that regard when he says things about yes, know, gun yes. violence. A lot, lot of Mustaine. Political candidates or... So by the time the Corey Taylor thing started, we were also starting to be over just doing the whole site uh you know so it was like kind of a way for us to keep ourselves entertained in a way 
sure. by making fun of ourselves right. for, you know, for writing these ridiculous headlines, you know, it was kind of this like meta view of like leaning into the absurdity of the fact that this is by far the thing that generates the most clicks right now. Let's just openly admit it and laugh at ourselves and laugh at everybody. And hopefully Corey Taylor understands that. I'm not sure that, that he does, you know, he, yeah. he might be in the camp of uh, the first thing you said of like thinking that, that the things that he said were being lampooned, but in fact, it's the opposite. I like, yeah. it's, um, the, it's the interest in it, the level of heightened interest in anything he says and does. That's being Yeah. And in fact, I think Corey Taylor is a really interesting person and has a lot of interesting opinions and things to say. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just that, uh, you know, I don't know if, if this is so much the case anymore. I don't think it really is, but uh, just, yeah, like for a while there, anything that guy said was traffic gold. It just was. This made me think of something I haven't thought about in years, which was, you know, over 20 years ago, my buddy Ryan Patterson and I did a, a fanzine called Superhero Zine. And we did it. I, I wrote a thing. It was a you know one page in the, in the zine and one issue. It was right around the time at the drive-in was getting their kind of mainstream look, and One Arm Scissor was on MTV, and, and every magazine was writing about them. And uh, I was just rolling my eyes at you could not read a press on at the drive-in that didn't mention the two of them have afros. <laughs> and so we did, I did this page in the zine that just was a series of of poll quotes, and it just said. At the drive-in has afros, NME. At the drive-in has afros, Kerrang. At the drive-in has afros, the New York Times. And it was just like all these publications. And I'd done that and laid it out. And then Patterson, my my partner on the zine, got a hold of it. And he added it at the bottom. At the drive-in has afros, superhero fanzine. And <laughs> that was like him making fun of me, making fun of, you know, and that and that's like exactly what you're describing with the what does Corey Taylor think, where it's like, well, I'm we're we're lampooning the fact that we are actively perpetuating this thing that we're also making fun of. Right. You know, and, th and that was him making fun of me going like, well, in pointing this out, you're, you are now yet another publication saying at the drive it has Afros. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think this is where you're going with this, uh, but Metallica also are very much that band. Oh yeah. The segue that I was going to do was yeah. that uh, a, a long running joke. And this is a joke that you, uh, introduced me to years ago was that yeah that you could just the best article you could ever run would just be a headline that says metallica slipknot tool and then just copy paste the words metallica slipknot tool endlessly into the and <laughs> and, and we did one day and it was yeah. a very popular article uh, like obviously <laughs> and it worked it worked in, in part because of the absurdity of it but uh you know but if it had been any three other bands, it probably wouldn't have been that popular. Yeah. So let's so let's break that down and let's get into Metallica specifically. And, and this and I want to introduce the topic du jour, which is the Metallica economy, as you put it in an email exchange we were having. Before we get into the Metallica economy specifically, which is a whole interesting enchilada. Just generally speaking, what is it about those three bands that made them so specifically you know traffic gold as you said for and not only metal sucks but probably metal injection loudwire bladdermouth you know lamb goat all across the board of all the sites covering that stuff i would imagine those those three were for sure 
well, I mean, I guess the simple answer is they're three of the most popular metal bands in the world. Uh, you know, I think that Tool maybe could go in and out of that top three, maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't be sure if they're still there, but the fact that they didn't release music for so long mm. was part of that, you know, and it was just anytime there was any inkling of news, you know, there's this whole joke about Tool fans, of course, that, you know, they just want to explain Tool to you the whole time, uh, you know, but those people... There's a lot of them and they click on articles about Tool, or at least they did up until they released that new album a few years ago. Um, but but yeah, I mean, the simple answer is they're just three very popular bands that fans... Yes and no, though, right? Because Iron Maiden, System of a Down, uh, you know, there are other bands that are, that are bigger than Slipknot. You know, you didn't do Iron Maiden, System of a Down, right. ACDC. You did Slipknot, Metallica, Tool. So it's like, why... And I'm not saying you know the answer, but but why do you think even beyond because it's beyond just like, well, they're big because there's bigger metal bands. Right. That's a good question. Um, I, I suppose it probably has something to do with the cult of personality around those bands. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, Metallica being the most popular metal band of all time and just, you know, the lore and everything with that band is, is kind of just that way by virtue of them being the most popular with Slipknot. Uh, you know, we touched on it. Corey Taylor is kind of a, a, a celebrity, a personality mm -hmm. in his own right. Um, then, of course, there's the fact that there's nine of them and there's they wear masks and they change masks every album and they got a guy that hits a keg. You know, like there's a lot to kind of glom onto there. And Tool take a long time to release records. They have the insane... I think yeah, they're mystique. Cool. They, yeah. yeah, they have amazing visuals. They have kind of an enigmatic, smart-ass frontman, um, and it just seems that uh, there's something about those bands that people just can't get enough of. I wonder if some of it, just as we're talking about it, I wonder if some of it is scarcity in so much as there's a finite number of outlets that are going to be closely following what Corey Taylor does versus say what like Dave Grohl does, right. Where, where Foo Fighters probably didn't get the same traffic for metal sucks because there are, there's constantly, you know, billboard and NME and, you know, people magazine, like there's just like everyone's covering Foo Fighters. So it probably makes it almost, less attractive from a traffic perspective than if you have more but, but metallica and slipknot aren't really scarce you know they I mean, make them i mean they're available. covered by those outlets but really just like they put out a new album or they announced a tour or you know it's it's not so much the way that the metal sites that we're talking about like really you know what i mean like the new york times isn't reporting that lars made a joke about the saint anger snare they're not Whereas <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Whereas that would be, you know, a huge story for any of these other sites. Right. Yeah, totally. On any given day. Um, I, yeah. just a theory. I don't know. Yeah. It's um, yeah. I don't know though. I mean like the members of Metallica make themselves available to the media. You know, they do like, there's really not that much of a scarcity there. I feel like, uh, but you know, I think for so many people, they are just the band 
the yeah. only band. Well, and I, yeah, and I don't mean a scarcity in, in information so much as I mean a scarcity, a, a finite number of outlets that are willing to commit to cover every nook and cranny and aspect of those bands. Right, right, sure. As opposed to just the broad strokes of the big news. Right. news like we're we're going to give the St. Anger snare a headline. We're going to give Kirk Hammett's comment about a wah pedal a headline. Exactly. Uh, you know, James doing a voiceover in a movie, whatever. You know, it's just, it's like we're covering all that. No doubt. So, that, and that brings us right into the meat here of, of the, metallic economy as you astutely put it and this phenomenon that uh you know as as we're recording this this is a year when metallica is putting out a new record which is increasingly rare the last new record was 2016 this is 2023 now with 72 seasons coming and the big announcement of here's the world tour here's the support acts here's the videos here's the lyric videos here's the merch here's you know a press cycle all of this stuff when it kicks up Versus, you know, and there are always one of the reasons they don't put out records as often is because they are always busy. They do always have something happening and something to talk about, whether it's a 3D movie or an appearance at Comic-Con or, you know, any any number of, of broad and nuanced things that they get into. But what started this conversation with you and I was there was a, a colleague of ours, somebody, one of our, our peers who went on went online and it wasn't the only person who feels this way. But she went online saying, ah, you know, as a metal, as a person in the metal industry advocating for smaller metal bands, I'm so irritated when Metallica puts out a new album and drops a new single, whatever, because it, it's sucking up all the oxygen, you know, when all the sites and magazines are giving space to Metallica, that's one less, that's one less article, that's one less click, that's one less everything for, you know, a more a band that whether or not they're more worthy or deserving, but just whether they need it more like a smaller band. And my counter to that, and you and I share this opinion and, and yours is backed up even a lot more by facts than my gut instinct is that I think the opposite. I think when Metallica does something big, that the big wave lifts all the boats and all of the smaller bands, you know, all, all of the sites have that many more resources to, uh, and it's the digital economy. So it's, it's not about page count. You know, it's not like, Oh, this magazine's 56 pages and 10 just disappeared to Metallica. It's endless. You can write as many stories as you want on a website. So I, I don't know. I, I, I feel that it is the exact opposite that they keep a lot of, you know, you were, you were the one who pointed out to me this idea of the Metallica economy that when those announcements come, that's all of those sites like metal sucks breathing a big sigh of relief and going ah we got we can keep the lights on this year metallica's doing stuff yeah so, seriously you know unpack all that for me yeah that's I'll, my first perspective is as as a member or former member of the media was when a band like metallica or slipknot or tool <laughs> would announce that new music is coming it would be like oh like thank god mana from the heavens we're going to have headlines to write about for the next several months that will generate traffic. No problem because Lars is going to be out there and interviewers are going to be asking him about the snare on San Anger. Interviewers are going to be asking Kirk about his wah pedal, you know, and all these things. And it's just going to be bite-sized quotes that we can turn into a headline and do a little humorous preamble, drop the quote in, 
drop some tour dates in like, boom, done easy content that we know is going to do well. Yeah. Um, so that's my perspective plate with some media. other Metallica articles to click on from the week before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lay all those in there in case you missed anything. <laughs> um, and, um, and then taking that concept to its logical conclusion is like, well, it's not just members of the media. It's a, a, a number of people and an amount of money that probably eclipses some small nations, mm-hmm. you know, like when you really add everything up, you're talking about um, obviously the managers and all the people that work there, the booking agents, anyone who works for any distributor or record store or they online just store. A, a record pressing plant. And I'm pretty sure the four of them aren't manning that plant for themselves. So there's staff they, there. Exactly. Lots of staff there. Uh, although the record pressing pressing plants seem to be fine. Didn't Metallica just buy one? So you know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, they just right. they, yeah, that, that I'm yeah. saying they just bought one. Right. They're not, they're not running um, it. So they're so right, right. I got you. So you, you know, and then it's all the way down to the the parking attendants at the stadiums that they took. You know, like so many people are directly or indirectly employed by Metallica that it's just this like mind boggling number you know like i wonder if there's a way to actually calculate what the gnp of metallica is you know what i mean yeah. like when you you know and like what that number would be like it would just be some some astronomical number so i'm inclined to agree with you when you say uh rising tide raises all ships or you had some similar i think uh, i said big wave but i don't uh, think that's big, big wave right yeah. um you know, I think it, it really is true. Although I do understand that particular publicist's gripe that like it's harder, you know, even if digital space is infinite, uh, time is not infinite, uh, of, you know, the writers. So sure. like, you know, I understand, but I think the long view definitely is that it helps. Yeah, I think that it's in the sense that it, it's keeping the lights on, you know, uh, those without Metallica Slipknot tool, those sites may not exist to give space to a smaller band, <laughs> you know, to, to put it plainly. Um, yeah. And even if, you know, whatever from Metallica story, uh, like a, a juicy one generates, let's say 10,000 page views. If 1% of those people stick around, you know, click around and see some other articles and see mm-hmm. an article about a smaller band, that's um 100 is my math right there you know that's a that's a significant amount of people for a small band it's the same rationale as to why a smaller band wants to support a larger band on tour right you know if i i I want there to be if i'm trying to get my band written about by metal sucks i want there to be big stories there about metallica and and tool because slipknot because those are going to be driving traffic to the site where someone's more likely to see the article about my band that I'm advocating for. And, and yeah, exactly. that's very much like the opening act thing. And that was another criticism that was lobbed around that same time by some, uh, a few different people that I saw that were like, oh, they're, they're taking Metallica and Wolfgang and, you know, all, the, all these bands that don't need it. They could be taking so many. It's like, dude, if there's any criticism out there of Metallica, the idea that they're not helping smaller bands has got to be the most bizarre and easily disprovable. I mean, they've always been very, very supportive. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure Hank Sherman is paying his mortgage from the Merciful Fate medley. Right. You know, I, I know that Anti Nowhere League, when I had Animal on the podcast, like he was, he had gone back to construction. And when So What became a thing via Metallica, the band's been back ever since he played with them at Wembley on like the Black Album. You know, it's like they're, I mean, the, the helping of small bands. I mean, taking somebody like Bokasa, who I've had on the podcast, who had never left Norway, you know, hadn't played a show outside of their home country. Lars discovered them and took them, you know, all over the place. And uh, yeah, I mean, the list is just endless. And also in the grand scheme of things, I think people forget that for gen pop, for civilians, for normies, normies, um, Iceland Kills is infinitesimal. That is a tiny band. You know, right. Wolfgang Van Halen is tiny. Five Finger Death Punch is tiny. You know, Pantera is something that they maybe kind of remember, you know? So it's like even, even these huge bands from our world that are being blessed with Metallica shows this year are still going to benefit from being out with the biggest metal band in the world because it's they're small potatoes by comparison. You know, Avenge Sevenfold did the Worldwide tour as, as direct support for that. Gojira opened. Again, two huge, massive bands in our world and Avenge has platinum records and so on. So small bands when I'm at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena watching Metallica, all those people in there like... <laughs> people don't know gojira right <laughs> you know, yeah this is how they're finding out about them which is part of the thing about metallica is that they do have that mainstream appeal or you know like friends of mine who aren't that into metal or don't go to a lot of shows will like hit me up and say like hey like want to get tickets to metallica they're like coming through you know like they reach those people yes because of the appeal of their songs and it absolutely is the case that those are the people who would visit a website like Metal Sucks or Metal Injection or Loudwire or anything because of a new song or tour date announcement or something Lars said about the snare sound on Say Anger uh, and might check out another band because there's an article in the, you know, related articles or sidebar or up next or or whatever. 100%. 100%. And I, and I think that is... Uh of the many gifts that they've given back <laughs> you know, they, literally literally giving you know starting a charity with all within my hands and the uh the number of things that you can list that they've done that are that are productive and reciprocal and appreciative of the people who support them uh helping with this metallica digital economy i think is is right there on the list you know and and also they they will take the time to you know, recreate the cover of Garage Days for Decibel. Yeah. They don't they don't need to be on the cover of Decibel, but they did mm-hmm. it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like they're still and again, Decibel's a big deal in our world and the mainstream world, like metal magazine, you mean like circus when I was a kid? You know, like <laughs> civilians aren't thinking about metal magazines. Right. So totally. and, and however well that, that Metallica cover or those Metallica covers that Decibel has done will do um you know that pays the overhead to be able to put leviathan and whoever you know on the cover yeah like any decibel diehards rolling their eyes at that like you know that like probably funds their whole year of content in some way you know like uh i don't know enough about the inner workings of, of decibel or even the print media world but you know i'll bet they printed more copies of that issue <laughs> right <laughs> you know because they knew it would sell 
Yeah, for sure. Um, well, dude, this has been fascinating. I knew it would be. This is all um, stuff that I was excited to talk with you about and certainly delivered. Did you have any sense, uh, you know, you're out of the game in the sense that you uh, stepped away, you and your uh, fellow co-founder from Metal Sucks and the site, but the site does continue and lives on and is in other hands. Many of them are some of the same folks who are contributing when, during your reign. Did you have any kind of sense of like where digital media is going next, having ridden the wave this long and, and survived, you know, in the barrel going down the waterfall, <laughs> all the twists and turns of how to do this? Uh, do you, do right. you feel like you, you have any kind of sense of what the next evolution of it is? Well, um, the ad marketplace, the digital ad marketplace in general, <clears throat> just in the whole world, is in a transitionary time. Media isn't being bought and sold, uh, or advertising media, I should say, bought and sold in the way that it was for a long time. Pretty much everything is automated on real-time bidding exchanges of you know the highest... Uh, you know, everyone's targeted. Everyone's a demographic for an ad that's going to be displayed for whatever the cheapest amount an advertiser will pay for it is. And, you know, and it's a race to the bottom on that stuff, um, as well as the over the, the macroeconomic situation at the moment in the world is not the best. That said, I think those are the slices of pie that are actually the most important ones for a metal outlet in particular. Uh, like I think, I mean, it, it's impossible to look back and say what I would have done had I still been running that site. But I think there's definitely a world in which we sort of took a look inward and decided, you know what, we are not doing reviews anymore. We are not doing, uh, you know, we're, we're not writing about, we're not doing premieres. We're not writing about really like any kind of music criticism anymore. We're not even dealing with publicists. We are just going to do the gossip. Like, mm. I think there's a world in which that could have happened maybe. And I think that it might have been the smartest choice at a certain point to go that route. Uh, you know, because you know, with all due respect to my many friends who are publicists and, you know, and work in, in the media with, uh, who, who do a lot of great work in a lot of other areas helping bands, like with regards to like pitching metal sites specifically just to cover something, like, I don't know that it really matters, you know? Like, I think those energies could be better spent trying to land Spotify editorial playlists or, you know, or just other things. Uh, you know, I think the role of publicists is very important, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really advocate spending top dollar on like making sure your second single is on Blabbermouth or whatever, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not really sure it matters anymore. And I know I'm a little biased because I, I, I have, direct relationships with so many of these outlets and I, I manage in my professional life an established band and established producer and I love publicists and I work with a lot of them in a lot of different ways uh, having said that yeah when it comes to demon hunter stuff 
a couple record and we've worked we've hired some great publicists people that i would recommend but we've had we've gotten done what we need to get done when we have album announcements and tour announcements and so forth just blasting it out on social media and then all, all the relevant sites occasionally i might give one of them a nudge like hey did you see we posted this mm-hmm. they all pick it up and it goes up and yeah and you know in a band like demon hunter who have been around for a while they have their fan base and are largely preaching to that fan base which isn't yeah. to say they shouldn't be trying to expand their fan base of course they should sure. um you know i'm just not convinced that like wrote media coverage of just like a copy and paste press release of the album's second single or whatever is like really gonna do that you know i think like there's other ways that a band and a manager and a label team could focus their energies that would probably be a bit more fruitful yeah, um, and, and, which, and a lot which of again it... isn't isn't to just sorry just to finish the thought like isn't to disparage the media either it's just you know as we spoke about earlier in this conversation it's just not really the reason that people tune to metal media anymore for music discovery it's just yeah. not where most of that is happening um the media has taken on this role of kind of you know just the gossipy stuff and that's just because that seems to be what people want and they tell media that with their clicks it's really as simple as that and it's important i think and for folks listening to this who are maybe interested in any any facet of the different things we're talking about it's important to think in terms of story hooks and that doesn't necessarily have to be salacious or or dumbed down but there's some stuff that just doesn't cut through i mean for demon hunter even just to reach their existing fan base this is the great trick of the social media platforms is that they had us bring all of our fans to them and then started charging us to talk to all those fans right so you know demon hunter has almost a half a million fans on facebook unless we spend absurd amounts of money we're reaching 30,000 of those half a million people every time we post something. But, but beyond, beyond that, um, when I say hooks, I do this other podcast uh, for not fest called the disc dive, where the concept is I sit with an artist and we go over there and every studio album, every full length in their discography. So, you know, for folks who've been in multiple bands, it can get really crazy and, uh, but it's really fun. And then we break those up. Uh, you know, the whole thing goes out as an audio podcast, and then we break them up into a few videos that are per album. Well, and this is no slight to anyone behind the scenes at NotFest, it's all been trial and error. But for the last several, the titles of the videos on YouTube have just been Dustin from Thrice talks the artist in the ambulance. You know, Blothar from Gwar talks Scum Dogs of the Universe. And that had been like every headline. And I actually spent just two nights ago, you know, a couple of hours going back and retitling every one of those videos to things like uh, why thrice remade their classic album, you know, uh, how thrice signed to a major label, but they're the same videos and they're the same stories, but just like doing the whys and the hows and capitalizing the band name and, making it short and trying to avoid non-content words and you know uh and i cringe as i'm sure you do when you see the like you know looper and some of those sites that are like the crazy true story behind pulp fiction right. when it's like so clearly clickbait and whatever but there is definitely something to be said for 
you know, how thrice signed to a major label is sexier than Justin from thrice talks about the artist in the ambulance. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, yeah. And some of it, you feel corny, you know, how thrice changed the game with their sophomore LP or whatever, but it, for better or worse, that's kind of, you know, it, the attention economy is part of the digital thing. And when Dustin from thrice, I know my interview with him is great and unique, but the reality is he talked to a dozen different outlets the same couple weeks when he talked to me and that's who I'm competing with to get, to get eyes and ears on, on my interview. Cause you've got to somehow communicate in a very short, catchy way that you're getting something different out of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the hook, as you said, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you meant it this way, but I think that also functions as, uh, the hook of the song, uh, you know, which I think is always important to remember. It so often is lost in the conversation amongst primarily us industry folks when we're talking about how to market a band or be successful or continue to be successful is just good songs, you know, like at the, at the end of the day, if your songs suck, you're probably not going to get that far. Uh, you know, and I think the best example of that is ghost. Uh, like people are quick to, to, um, credit the gimmick with their success. And to be sure that's definitely a part of it. Um, but if they didn't have the songs to back it up, it would go nowhere. The gimmick Uh, wouldn't, the gimmick wouldn't have gotten them this far Yeah, for this long. Yeah. But so without the songs to back it up, hundred percent agree. Uh, well, Ben, this has been great and, uh, happy to have you back on anytime and uh, talk more Metallica and, and keep following you in your career and what you're doing and bands you're managing and, and wherever uh, this crazy thing of ours takes you next. Thanks. Uh, stoked to be invited on fan of the podcast, fan of you, all your work and obviously Metallica love rapping Metallica. And I'm stoked that you went for my idea of the Metallica <laughs> yeah. economy. So, great. Uh, you know, and it's definitely something to, to think about as we continue to watch this album cycle play itself. 